Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. A robot is something that doesn't work because <laughs> as soon as it does work, we call it a dishwasher or, <laughs> you know, we call it a washing machine or we, you know, we call it something else, whatever it does. And so a robot is kind of before it actually becomes useful in that way. But that's that's kind of the things, I mean, people have different ways of, of defining what a robot is, but it's really something that's ultimately going to have some sense of its environment. Uh, it's going to be able to make decisions through, through computation, and it's going to be able to do something in the real world. And so with those criteria, you really do look at, you know, I mean, my, my washing machine can tell if, you know, if all the water's leaked out or the, or the better ones, the dryer, right? It can actually... Now it's smart enough to tell if the clothes are dry and it will add time to it. So, you know, you have, you know, when you make a smoothie in the morning, it's doing the same thing. And so there's, there's kind of this way in which robots are already all around us. You know, anybody that's had heart surgery in the past few years or that's had, um, you know, kidney surgery or things like that, your life was probably saved by a robot. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Mike, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you either by way of your publicist or somebody, but when they told me you were the co-founder of a robotics company, I thought to myself, yeah, I definitely want to talk to this guy uh, <laughs> because of the fact that you had had a military background and you started a robotics company. I thought this has got to be a fascinating story. But before we get into uh, your work, I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life and career? Yeah, so I, I I love this question so much. I always love hearing people's answers to it. Um, so for me, my my mom was an English teacher for forty years in my school district. So she taught first grade, then seventh grade, and she was very hands on educator. Really would sit with me, taught me how to write, read, do math, everything like that. Uh, but I also think one of the really important things that came from having my mom be a teacher was actually just the comfort that I had in my school district. So. I, I always felt like I could go to her class and get notes and I could show up late to school and these kinds of things. But now I kind of realized that that, that comfort with, with authority has really shaped the kind of leader that I've become uh, later mm -hmm. on. 
And my dad, uh, my dad runs his own business. So he's, he's had his own business for over 50 years, uh, the LeBlanc painting company. So he'll, he'll do all kinds of, you know, blue collar work on people's houses, um, primarily house painting. And, but my dad, again, just, uh, he, he took his job because he never wanted to have a boss. And so they, they were both, it was interesting in that my parents are both very conventional, but you know, and if you, if you looked at our life, it was just very cookie cutter in, in the suburbs, but, but really both of them were, were giving me these skills and abilities to kind of navigate above the fray and to know when to break the rules and when to, when to stay within the rules. Mm -hmm. Your mother being a teacher. What was the narrative about education uh, in your household? And, and did you ever have your mom as a teacher? <laughs> no, I never, I never had her as a teacher, but I think that the biggest push was on reading constantly. Mm. And so my, you know, I, I can remember as a kid, we would go to the library and we'd max out our library card every week. And it was just, we'd all go back and, you know, my mom and dad would, would read to us just over and over again, book after book. And that was really the big push on education. But it was interesting. By the time I got to high school, I actually planned not to go to college. So I, I had really kind of broken away from that because I I didn't like the cookie cutter education. I didn't like what, what college looked like and what I'd seen my cousins do and what my brother had gone to do. So it was, yeah, it was kind of a kind of a break from the system at that point. How did your parents react to to that idea? Because I can only imagine how that'd go over with my Indian parents if I said I'm not going to college. <laughs> Even when I floated the idea of taking a semester off to work, they were like, absolutely not, because we know you well enough to know that if you start making money, you'll never go back. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it looked really crazy to them. Um, but even even when I look back now, I was you know 17, but I thought my reasons were pretty sound. I, I didn't want to go somewhere and party. I, I really wanted to start to get serious. And I felt like in high school, I had not been serious. Uh, and, you know, I, did, I didn't take school very seriously. And so I really wanted to go into business. I really wanted to start my own company. I wanted to start something new and, and really, you know, have the, have the market kind of answer how good or bad I was doing rather than a teacher. But I think, uh, so my, my parents were very unhappy about that. And I got fortunately saved by an English teacher, as so many people do. I had a great English teacher my senior year that ended up telling me about her college and, and I ended up applying and going there. Hmm. Um, so one thing that you alluded to was this idea of comfort with authority, which is, is kind of hilarious to me because I'm the person who has a complete disregard for authority or disdain for it, <laughs> which is probably why the corporate world didn't work for me. Cause I just hated the idea of you know being told what to do and when to be somewhere. But I figured that that's got to be an incredibly valuable skill in terms of navigating social dynamics in any organization or any situation. Talk to me about that more. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, this was this was one of the funny things about me going to the military because I I was known for for breaking rules. I was in I was in a rock band all through high school. I was just not not really one to follow a lot of rules. So going to the military, everyone in my life thought was a completely crazy idea, right? That I would that I would go and do something like that. But to me, it was sort of, you know, selective subservience. I, I you know, I kind of have, I, I have this concept I always talk about, discipline on demand, where I tell all my employees, like, you've got to know when to be disciplined. You don't have to do it all the time in your life. You don't need to, you know, have your toothpaste laid out the night before, but you need to have discipline on demand for, for big projects. And, and I think that was what I was, I was really comfortable kind of navigating above authority. And then also, you know, by the time I got to the military, strict hierarchy, 
of really just looking at all those people as different stakeholders. You know, I, I looked at a commander the same as I would look at one of my Marines because I thought, yeah, no, I just, these people both want things from me and I have to figure out how to deliver for both of them. So kind of an, kind of an interesting, uh, you know, servant leadership that came out of it. Yeah. Well, did you go straight from high school into the military? No, no. So I, so I ended up going to college first. Uh, and that was, that was where, so I, you know, my family doesn't come from the military. Uh, I'd never, I'd never shot a gun or anything before I'd even gone into the military. So not a military family whatsoever, but, uh, but yeah, once I went to college, I studied the classics and philosophy and really started to get sold on, you know, we all translated ancient Greek. I'd get sold on Aristotle and, and Plato and Thucydides and started really thinking about what was going on in the world and, you know, opening my eyes and going, is there a war going on? I think there is, you know, and had to, you know, it was just so, so secluded from it that I had to kind of pop in and start looking and thinking, well, yeah, why wouldn't I join? Why wouldn't that be something that I would go do? And so it was kind of an odd, you know, not many people in, in my college, it was all very, you know, you'd wear Birkenstocks and play croquet <laughs> on the grass <laughs> all day. Not, not many of them end up going to the military. Um, but yeah, that was, that was where I found myself after, after all the stuff that I'd read. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, in talking about the experience of being a Marine, because my exposure to military has been through, I think, two or three guests on this show. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was Chris Fussell uh, and a couple of others. I actually was really fortunate that I got to do a uh, training for a bunch of retired special forces guys. One of our listeners ran a nonprofit where he was helping them transition into civilian careers. And he said, hey, will you come and talk to them? He's like, we That's can't great. pay your speaking fee, but we'll buy you know, your flight and pay for your books. And I was like, I'll make you a deal. I'll come and do it with one condition. He's like, what's that? I was like, I saw that you're in close proximity to a ski resort. He said, oh, you want a lift ticket? And I'm like, yep. And he's like, we'll make that happen. But um, I think the, the thing that always stayed with me from that experience, one of the guys who picked me up uh, from the airport was uh, part of Joint Special Operations. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you guys are like seriously high up. And I said, you know, I don't mean this offensively, but uh, I'm just curious because I've never gotten to talk to somebody at such a high level before. Um, and I asked him, like, why do we as a country spend so much money on military when we've got so many problems here at home that aren't being dealt with? And he he said, he said, what you got to understand is that people in the military are taking orders from politicians and everything that the United States does is for political risk or political gain. And um, but I want to hear your perspective on that. And the other thing I want to talk about is, is the training that goes into something like becoming a Marine, because I think the other uh, exposure I've had to that was David Goggins book. And yeah. I remember somebody talking to me about David Goggins book. They were interviewing me and I'm like, yeah, look, you got to consider context here. You can't just go and live David Goggins life. You're not a Marine. You weren't trained as one. Like, of course, he's <laughs> tough as fucking nails. Look at what he's been through. Um, so talk to me about those two things. Yeah. So, I mean, from the dollars perspective, it was really interesting. So I was I was actually with uh, just of AP. So the Joint Special Operations Task Force Arabian Peninsula. Uh, that was that was my third deployment to the Middle East. And when I was there, that was supposed to be a very boring routine deployment to uh, Bahrain. And so I was I was going to stay in a Marriott. It was going to be, be a very simple thing. But when I was there, that was when ISIS came, you know, tearing up uh, <laughs> Iraq and Syria. And so all of a sudden you had this huge, huge situation. And what was so fascinating to me was everyone, all the different commands in the area, all wanted to be the head command for responding to ISIS. And so what, what I ended up seeing was, you know, State Department really wanted to handle it. The military really wanted to handle it. And all of these different units were all making their their positioning for why they were great. And, you know, now having so much to do with enterprise sales and selling robotics and things, I I really see it's it's the same kind of thing. Everybody was looking for their unique differentiators of what made them the special one that was able to handle this, right? So it's all kind of product market fit. But that was what we we were all working day and night just to prove that we were the best ones to go in and that we had the capabilities. And we ended up, we ended up winning that. So we were actually in charge of, uh, we were actually in command of the troops in Iraq when, when we ended up sending up the, the boots on the ground. But it was so interesting to see because so many people's careers are tied to it. So much money is tied to it. Uh, and everyone wants to make sure that they're, that they're building all those things. So there was an excitement. Whereas, 
you know, you would have, you would have loved to see some kind of, you know, sober reflection <laughs> on going, should, should we be doing this? How should we be handling this? Instead, it felt like, you know, a, a kind of bake off. So that was, that was all fascinating thing. Um, the training, yeah, the training, of course, was a, <laughs> was a really fascinating draw to me about going to the military. You know, I kind of, I, I'd always, you know, I'd always worked out and, you know, I'd, I'd play sports and things, but really to, to push yourself as hard as you could and to think about how can I, how can I start exceeding these limits that I've kind of set for myself? I think that's, that's an excitement for a lot of guys getting in the military. And, and I ended up having, you know, just under two years of training, right, you know, right as soon as I got into the Marines. Uh, and, and then you kind of go to training courses all throughout your career. So I was in for 13 years total. So you end up going to a lot of training over the years, but I think it's, it's one of the things that the military does that's so great, uh, that, that isn't as strong in the corporate world. You know, there's some trainings that you can go to here and there, but that was always exciting to pull yourself out of your life and to get back into a training, something, something that's going to be hard, something that's going to be difficult and, you know, that's going to push you to learn something new. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing, I remember asking Chris Fussell this about SEAL training and I remember reading this in uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. I think he talks about people yeah. ringing the bell and quitting. And, and I'm curious, I want to hear your perspective on this because I know from what I've read in the David Goggins book and just the conversations I've had, I don't know this is hardcore. And I wonder, what do you think it is that separates the people who get through it from the ones who don't? I'm guessing there were probably people who quit, right? Yeah, they, yeah, there are huge attrition rates in these courses. So for me, I think the the hardest course that I ended up going to was called the infantry officer course. And this is already, you know, you're already selected from a much larger group that all wanted to go into the infantry. Uh, and, and then even still there's, there's going to be over 50% attrition or, or there was back when I was there. And, and so you're seeing already people that have self-selected into this, people that have already pushed themselves and proven themselves throughout nine months of other training. Uh, but still, yeah, you're, you're going to drop most of those people. And to me, it, it ended up really being the mindset. There are, it's, it's really silly. A lot of the stuff that goes on in training and you can kind of see the game of it. And you have kind of two, two routes that you can go. Some people get very cynical and start looking down at the game and some people play the game. And it's really about, even though you can see it and you can see behind the scenes, you've, you've got to pull yourself to say, I'm going to play the game. I'm going to stay in it and I'm going to play to win. Mm-hmm. You, I think the other thing that struck me, if I remember correctly, was in my conversation with Chris Fussell. He said, you, you'll see these guys come in and some of them are these huge guys who look like they're just, you know, former football players. They look like they're going to be the ones to crush it. They're the ones who quit. And it's some like scrawny looking nerdy guy that ends up making it through. <laughs> you know, is that how accurate is that? Completely. Yeah. I mean, I, I had two two good buddies. One of them was was from Yale. He was six, three chiseled jaw. You know, I mean, just just the athlete, the dream of what you think that a that an infantry officer would be. Um, he ended up dropping from the course, and we ended up having another guy. I think he was he was five six. He was a very very short, stout guy, but he'd be there. He'd have he'd have his pack on, you know, two hundred twenty pounds, two hundred fifty pounds on his back, you know, way more than this guy weighed, um, and he'd be doing nine miles in the snow with it. I mean, it was it was incredible to see. But you know, I think what they were what they're looking for so much is the mental game. They want to see that you can make a decision. And a lot of people that are, you know, are kind of too smart for their own good in that. And so you do end up finding a lot of these people that, 
they've they've been able to apply themselves to school and they've done very well. They can apply themselves to sports and do very well. Anything that has set rules, they can do very well. But once they get into the military, the military wants something different. They want this kind of execution intelligence, somebody that's mm-hmm. able to just make a simplistic decision and say, we're going forward with it and not not to question it 50 million times over. Yeah. Well, I mean, well let's talk about this idea of uh, what you just called execution intelligence, because there are two things I wonder. And I asked my friend Akshay Nanabhati this as well. Uh, I think did two tours in Iraq. And I asked him, what do we not see uh, as civilians when we experience combat or war through the media? And and then, you know, in terms of this whole idea to make decisions, like I, I always feel like I would be terrified for my life every time I was in a situation because like almost all of these are potential life or death situations, aren't they? I guess the interesting thing is, you know, so my, my parents were so worried about me while when I went to Afghanistan for my first tour and and they were they were always like, this is this is just gonna be terrible. They were kind of picturing Saving Private Ryan or something like that, uh, you know, or Call of Duty, right, that everybody's just kind of off on their own. But I, at the same time, my, my older brother was in New York. He lived in New York. And I remember he was living a very, uh, very different kind of lifestyle. <laughs> and he'd been out drinking one night and had, had fallen asleep on the subway. And, you know, it was a, it was a funny story that he told the family of, you know, yeah, I fell asleep on the subway and ended up waking up at the end of the line and things. And, but I always said, he's, he's in a much more dangerous situation than I am, right? <laughs> because, I'm, I have, I have multiple weapons on me. I'm surrounded by people with multiple weapons. We have all practiced every single thing that you can do, right? Enemy left, contact front, all these things. We've done them a million times over. And, and so to me, by the time you're actually in, in Afghanistan and in those situations, it's not just running around with a gun in call of duty. It's, you know, there's, there's much more procedure to it. And you can, you know, just like somebody who's played chess for a very long time can walk up and look at a board and kind of recognize it. I think that everyone in the military that, that deploys end up having that same kind of eye where they can look at it and go, yeah, I've, I understand this pattern and I understand kind of where I fit in it. So it takes a lot of that, that fear and uncertainty out of it. It doesn't feel quite like the, the horror movie. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that had struck me most is uh, somebody told me, well, the other thing you know that you have going into these situations is that somebody always has your back. That's kind of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the huge thing. You're, you're part of, you know, part of the rigid hierarchy is really this camaraderie and teamwork, the band of brothers that comes through in all of these things is that you do know people have jobs to do. Uh, you know, you, you know, these people, you know, their families, you just know everyone so well that it, it does. There's a huge trust there that you're almost an, an organism, right? It's almost like bees working together or something like that, uh, that yeah. develops because, you know, I see that, I see that in companies now too. People kind of jump in, but they, they don't have that deep teamwork. They don't deeply count on each other. They don't really know each other so much. And so I think, I think that there's something very scary and difficult about being able to manage that kind of thing. Whereas mm-hmm. in the military, once you know your place and you've earned your place, uh, there's something really exciting about being able to count on everyone else that's with you. Yeah. From all the people I've ever talked to who have spent time in the military on this show and otherwise, I get the sense that going to the military is better preparation for leadership than going to Harvard for business school. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's arguably true. Um, I mean, and I think that's that's why, you know, Harvard Business School wanted me was that <laughs> it was that I'd been to the military. That was that was my whole thing. They bring in a lot of military for that reason to kind of you mm-hmm. know bring them into the peer group. But, you know, I, I had really seen it as that I thought it was. My, my dad had really raised me to be a leader always, always talked to me about leadership. 
you know, that was, that was really the theme of, of my life and education coming up. And so once I started looking at the Marines, it was this thought that you're going to get more responsibility than you could anywhere else. Right. On my, on my first deployment, I only had something, something like 13 Marines or something pretty small. Um, but ended up working my way up to, to running, you know, managing 150 people. And to be able to do that, you know, when you're between 23 and 26, that's, that's pretty incredible experience. And now, you know, in my, in my work now, we have just under 200 employees in my company. Uh, it's, it's all the same, same stuff that comes up, just a different flavor of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. there are always people off on their own program, all the, you know, people with their own initiatives, people that are, uh, bought, you know, need to be bought back into, into the vision. All, all the things really remain the same. Talk to me about the transition into civilian life after spending so much time uh, in the military, because I, I remember the thing that struck me most when I talked to these guys uh, who were, you know, soon to be retired special forces guys was this sense that they were losing their community. I very distinctly remember a conversation I had with one of the guys. He was like, yeah, he was like, I'm going to lose access to my gym. These are the people that I <laughs> hang out with, you know, my whole life. Uh, and I remember I got to go to to surf at Camp Pendleton because one of the guys there uh, was part of this organization. And he he I think he was a podcast listener of ours. And he was like, oh, hey, cool. Trini, he's like, you're he's the Navy SEAL. So because you can't surf Pendleton unless you're willing to trek down. I mean, I'm sure you probably know what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. you actually can't surf that spot unless you're willing to walk <laughs> like two miles with a surfboard in the sun. But if you're a military, you can go access it. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is like the best of trestles with none of the crowd. You know? <laughs> uh, but I think that what struck me was how much community played a huge role in all of this and this sort of sense of loss of identity when something has defined you as a person for so long. Yeah, the transition was was really difficult. I When I'd gone into the military, I was really excited about staying in forever. You know, so I had, you know, or at first you're kind of like, am I going to do a couple years or am I get, what am I going to do? But I really loved it. I really came alive in the military and thought I'm going to do this for 30 years and, or until they kick me out, right? And I'm going to stick around this. And I, I love the idea about working up to different commands. Uh, and I think they do a very good job of kind of showing how your, how your vision shifts from looking very tactically to looking strategically at things. I thought that was all extremely exciting. Uh, and so when I, when I got to Pendleton, actually my first day stationed in Pendleton, which is in Southern California, I met my wife and that really threw everything off. <laughs> so that was, that was not <laughs> my plan. And, and all of a sudden I was head over heels in love and thought, oh man, I've got to get out. You know, just the week before I'd been like, I want to deploy again. I want to, I want to get back over. And then I met her and thought, I don't want to go anywhere else. <laughs> I want to get out uh, immediately. But the, yeah. uh, the transition ended up being extremely difficult because, you know, whereas I'd had so much responsibility and was, was really building a good career in the military, none of that really translates, right? You get out and people, most, most people hiring don't have a sense of what the different ranks are, what the different units are. Uh, so you lose all of that, all the kind of reputation that comes with the units that you belong to or the things that you've done because everybody's like, look, it's a lot of acronyms. It's alphabet soup. I don't really understand it. And so I had, at the time I was applying all over the place. I'd applied to over 50 jobs, you know, and, and really tried to do these things. Um, I barely, barely got any offers out of there. I got one from Tesla to be a, a factory line worker. Uh, and my, you know, my commander was all making fun of me. He's like, oh yeah, there you go, LeBlanc. This is, this is why you learned to leave. This is why you did all this, so that you can go, go on the line and work a factory. And <laughs> You know, it was extremely difficult. And that was that was really to me like a, you know, all is lost in that moment. 
you know, I was wanting to get married. We were wanting to have kids. And I all of a sudden had for the first time this, this question of, am I, am I actually going to be able to go do this? I'd wanted to do business a long time ago. I wanted to be entrepreneurial, but now it, it all kind of looked too far, uh, that nobody was really going to respect what I'd done. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm pretty well screwed here. <laughs> Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So, I mean, what changed? How in the world do you go from a guy who's, you know, into philosophy and Plato and Aristotle to military to starting a robotics company? (laughs) Well, so so then once I I really found that I, I was having so much trouble finding a job, it, it so happened. I, I proposed to my wife. Uh, we set a date to get married six weeks later. We, we do everything fast. <laughs> and, uh, and during that time, we had a trip 
planned to go to New York uh, to visit one of her best friends who ended up being her uh, her maid of honor. But when we went and visited her, she was from Kosovo and so really came to America with nothing. Um, she and my wife were very close friends, but we knew she, it's not like she came from privileged background or anything. And when we went and visited her in New York, she was in this beautiful apartment and we were like, I've never seen a beautiful apartment in New York. <laughs> you know, this is, this is crazy. How, how are you living here? And she was, she was at Citibank and she had gone to Columbia, their school of international and public affairs, SIPA, and, and then gone to Citibank. And we all of a sudden realized, oh, there's this different path. I could go back to school. And so my, my wife's friend was a big advocate of saying, you know, oh, Mike's military experience, you know, being a Marine, they're going to, they're going to love that. He can, you know, he's going to do well on the test. And so that was where we really decided, okay, I've got to, I've got to get good at the GMAT now and mm-hmm. just started studying <laughs> like crazy. Hell. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, started, started going crazy after it. Uh, and that was, that was when we got into Harvard Business School and that kind of opened up all the different directions, right? Once, once I was in there, it went from no one wanting me to really having all of these interesting paths before me and just having to make good judgment calls about which one I wanted to go to. I mean, and so how did you evaluate and, you know, decide and, and like what came before the robotics company? If I remember correctly, you know, and I'll blame ChatGBT if this is inaccurate. <laughs> you worked at Google X? No, no. So that's, okay. uh, there you go. That's one of my, one of my co-founders, Travis, he was, he was at Google X. Okay. Yeah. I'd initially wanted to go into finance and it was for a really bad reason was that everybody, you know, as I started asking about all these things, I didn't know what finance was. I didn't know what any of these things were. Um, but I would just ask people questions. I used to, I remember I went to a bar with a friend and he kind of said, well, you're going to pick either consultant or, uh, consulting or finance. And I thought, okay, all right, that's good to know. So I, I went back home and I wrote on a piece of paper, consulting and finance. And then I would have, you know, the next conversation and I'd ask somebody, well, what, what kind of consulting do you do? And they're like, oh, you want to go to, you know, McKinsey Bain or BCG. And I'd go back to my paper and I'd write McKinsey Bain BCG. And over the course of all these conversations, I ended up having a really decked out sheet of paper that was just covered in what I thought of as all the possibilities that somebody could do with an MBA. And the one that kept coming up was in finance was private equity. And everyone would just sort of say, you can't do private equity. That's, you know, you had to do investment banking. They want to see, you know, all this, you know, uh, analysis. You need to be an analyst beforehand, all these things. And for whatever reason, that got me really wanting to do it, right? It sounded like the big hard thing to go chase down. And so originally, when I'd gone, when I'd gone to Harvard, I thought, okay, I want to get out and do finance. I liked that it had a barrier to entry. I liked that it was a hard thing that everybody was competing for. Uh, and so that's, that's what I really, really gunned for, worked toward <laughs> for those, for those two years. I thought that was the most exciting thing. So one thing I have heard about Harvard Business School is because of the case study method, people there really learn how to think differently than they do at other business schools. But I think there's, in my mind, probably also this myth that basically a Harvard MBA is a ticket to success guaranteed, um, which I'm guessing is not entirely true. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, so, you know, I had, so I, I really wanted wanted to go into finance. I wanted to go to uh, Morgan Stanley because just just meeting my classmates, the Morgan Stanley people really picked uh, stuck out. And so I thought I, I really loved the kind of mentorship that it sounded like was there. I really loved the culture that they had there. So I only went, I only went to apply to Morgan Stanley. That was the only place that I went for. And, you know, I went, you go in these big hotels, you got your suit on 
And when I, I had to answer all of these 400 investment banking questions, they give you to study. So I'd done flashcards on all these things. And, and the guy that was interviewing me asked me the first couple, I, I got them right. And he goes, okay, so what you've done the investment banking questions. Are there any that you have trouble with? And I said, no, I, I think I can do all of them. And he said, okay, well, I'm not just going to sit here and ask you questions that you know the answers to. And he goes, do you, have you done any uh, LBOs? And I said, what's that? He said, leverage buyout. I said, I don't know what that is. So he goes, okay, perfect. Let's do that. <laughs> and so he spent the rest of my interview having me try to intuit an LBO. Uh, and and I, of course, had had no idea what that was or how to do that. And so I was turned down initially by Morgan Stanley. And that that to me was, I, I did have this thought that, you know, once once you get that Harvard name, everything's just going to pop open. But it's a, it's a ton of work. It's just that I think that a lot of the people that have done the work to get into places like Harvard are also willing to do the work to get into uh, very hard jobs and very hard roles. So that was, that was pretty surprising. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how do you get to starting at Cobalt and, you know, into robotics? Because this doesn't seem like a natural segue into studying robot or, you know, starting a robotics company. Yeah. So I, I ended up, you know, I, after, after that Morgan Stanley, I'd gone home to my wife and told her, you know, I really let us down. I put all my eggs in this basket and it just fell apart. I just got turned down <laughs> and she, you know, my, my wife will get very, uh, very angry for me in these things. She's like, that's not right. You need to talk to the decision makers. You need to, you know, we, we need to go and actually solve this. So I went to all of my friends at, at Morgan Stanley, uh, who had worked at Morgan Stanley and they linked me up with all of their bosses. And so I, I went to New York and just kind of set up my own, my own day of interviews of going around and talking to all of them. And that was where the decision makers really saw and, and went, Oh no, this, this guy's great, right? We, we like his qualities. He really likes us. They, they liked that I only went for Morgan Stanley rather than thinking that it was kind of naive. And, and so they, they created a, a job for me. Uh, to come in. And while I was there, I ended up meeting, uh, meeting someone named David Kahn, who ended up leaving, uh, Morgan Stanley and went to a hedge fund called Co2. Co2 was invested in the, in the early rounds of Cobalt Robotics. And so as soon as he got there, he said, this is a perfect fit for you. You would be a great leader coming in here. Like you really need to look at this. And, and that was where I really decided to make that jump. Well, let's let's talk about robotics in particular, because I think that, you know, as I was telling you before we hit record, the my perception of robotics is, OK, this is only accessible to people who have, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to spend or, you know, it's that stupid Sony dog that cost eight hundred dollars that doesn't actually do a damn thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like more and more with the sort of advances we're seeing in artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, elderly populations around the world, particularly in places like Japan that robots are going to actually become pretty normal parts of all of our lives. And you guys, I understand, deal with primarily with businesses, but talk about the, the sort of misunderstandings that people have of uh, robotics and, and kind of what, what's actually possible now that it, uh, people may not know. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing is, you know, everybody's watched like those funny videos of when the internet came out and, you know, it'd be like on the Today Show or whatever, where they go, what would they use it for? Oh, a cookbook, you know, maybe it, people could use it for recipes. Um, I think that there's it, people really under, underestimate the time that it's going to make take to make something valuable in the world. And so you kind of have new and exciting tech come out and people see the capabilities and think, oh, this is amazing. But then there's years before people actually figure out something useful to do with it. 
And I think that robotics have been stuck in that for a while now. You know, really modern service robotics you see coming out because of all the investments that have poured into autonomous vehicles. So, mm-hmm. you know, our, our central depth sensor in 2008 used to cost over $200,000. And the only place that you could get access to it was at like a, a great lab in, in one of the universities, right? But today that same depth sensor is under $1,000 because wow. of how many are being made now. So, so you all of a sudden have robots that can move around because of all these things uh, that have, because of all the investments that have poured in. But everyone is still really scraping the surface of just where and how we can make these things useful. And I think that it's easy, uh, not, not easy, but <laughs> easier to start a robotics company where you just get one or two robots a lot of places mm-hmm. because you can find, find people that like robots. You know, there are yeah. these innovators and visionaries that just go, that's a cool part of the future. I, I want to be a part of it, but really breaking into those pragmatists, the people that are like, does this do something for me? Does this save me money? Does this improve the way that I, that I run my operations? That's a very difficult thing to figure out and, and involves, you know, way more, way higher performance than you'd ever expect. And, and that, you know, innovators will, will deal with anything. You know, they're all like from a, you know, Mr. Dink from Doug. If, a <laughs> you know, they're just, they, they want the crazy thing, but they don't mind if a robot bumps into a wall or something at, mm-hmm. at our customers today, you know, we have hundreds of these, hundreds of these things out. If, if one of them bumped into a wall or, you know, fell downstairs or something like that, that, that would be the end of the company. That'd be the end of the contract and the company. Wow. So it, it really, really means that you've got to, you've got to make this big jump from, you know, just making a cool robot that can run to having a robot that has very high performance and that does something for somebody. So it's a, it's, it's a really challenging problem. It's a really exciting industry to be, be a part of because of that. Well, you know, I, I think that one thing I'm curious about is like, what is actually possible? Like, what are robots currently capable of? Because there are some things I've seen in the last year. I remember it was the day that my nephew was born. My parents and I stayed uh, at the UCLA guest house because my dad's a professor. And I was walking around campus and I'm seeing like all these little you know robots just driving around delivering <laughs> food to student dorms. And I'm thinking to myself, that's insane. And, and I'm like, well, that's more efficient than a delivery driver. But uh, <laughs> what's what's possible right now? Like, what are the, the capabilities that we have? And then what goes in like into actually building a robot that serves some sort of useful function? And then where are robots being used in our day to day lives where we're probably not even aware of it? Yeah. So this to me, this is all moving really fast because ChatGPT, you know, everybody's using it for text right now, but it also has uh, it's able to work with images. So for years that's, that's been kind of the power behind Cobalt is that our cameras have all these analytics that can spot if a door is open or closed, if there's a leak or spill on the floor, all these things that are, you know, boring to most people, but very interesting to security directors and to facilities managers and things. So, so that's been really our power. We've done that all through machine learning. But now with ChatGPT, that's really opening up to much more detections than, than we thought were possible. So this is a huge jump in the robot really being able to go around and identify everything that's around. So for us, you know, we work, we work in mostly corporate offices, warehouses and things. This, this really opens up things on an inventory standpoint, being able to recognize what's, what's sitting on a shelf, uh, you know, being able to report back all of the, the expensive items to, to one of our customers and say everything's there or something's missing, et cetera. So a lot of exciting stuff happening on the kind of camera side on, on the robotic side, of what can actually move in the world. It's, it's really interesting because 
you can end up having a robot do all these incredible things. We've had, I, I watched one robot robotics camp competition where, you know, it was, uh, so, so the robots looked like people and the, the person robot, you know, the person shaped robot had to get in a car and drive something like, you know, 50 feet or something like that, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's all of these very simple things that we go through our day to day life thinking, of course, you know, you just get in a car, just open up the door, get in. But when you actually break it down into all of the steps, it's incredibly difficult to be able to, to open a car door, to, to sit down in it, to close that door without breaking anything. And then to, you know, to put a foot on the gas, all of these things are really incredible mechanically, but people are able to fill it, f- uh, figure out all of these challenges. You know, it's, it's amazing to see once you actually break down a workflow, just how robotics can figure this out. And so it really comes down to defining what are those workflows that you want to do. And oftentimes it's, it's more simple things like just looking, listening, taking in environmental factors, uh, than it is actually moving things around. That's the most valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, how far off are we from sort of robots becoming mainstream parts of our lives? Like I, I remember going into chat GPT just because I was so curious. I was like, you know what? I wish I had a robot that could cook food like my mom. And uh, <laughs> I was like, and I asked Tati, I was like, how do I build this? And I looked at the the specs. It gave me all the details, which was amazing. And I was like, how hard is this? It was like, well, if you don't have any knowledge of electrical engineering, I would not recommend you do this. Like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it just, it raises a question because I think that, you know, in all of our minds, like, I, the, the one example I always come back to is the cell phone. And I, you know, I don't know how old you are, but like, I remember when I was growing up, the, idea of what the future was, would look like was when you could see a person's face on the other end of the phone. <laughs> right. That was like, that was it. We'd arrived in our back to the future moment. Yep. And the crazy thing was we had that capability from the very first iPhone and we didn't start using it until the pandemic. Like most people <laughs> texted. You know, it was like, how are we, you know, this elementary where it's like we have this capability and we're choosing to communicate via text. Yeah. Uh, and so that's something I wonder is where are we at in terms of progress and how far are we from robots sort of becoming much more mainstream and accessible to, yep. you know, the average person like me who's not looking to staff, you know, robots as security for a big company. It's, it's really interesting to me because I think, you know, you have to really ask like what a robot is, you know, our, our favorite definition of a, of a robot. And I, I don't know who said it, but we say it all the time uh, is a robot is something that doesn't work. Because as soon as it, as soon as it does work, we call it a dishwasher or, you know, we call it a washing machine or we, you know, we call it something else, whatever it does. And mm-hmm. so a robot is kind of before it actually becomes useful in that way. But that's, that's kind of the things, I mean, people have different ways of, of defining what a robot is, but it's really something that's ultimately going to have some sense of its environment. Uh, it's going to be able to make decisions through, through computation and it's going to be able to do something in the real world. And so with those criteria, you really do look at, you know, I mean, my, my washing machine can tell if, you know, if all the water's leaked out or the, or the better ones, the dryer, right? It can actually, now it's smart enough to tell if the clothes are dry and it will add time to it. So, you know, you have, you know, when you make a smoothie in the morning, it's doing the same thing. And so there's, there's kind of this way in which robots are already all around us. You know, anybody that's had heart surgery in the past few years or that's had, um, you know, kidney surgery or things like that your life was probably saved by a robot. You know, and these, these are things that we don't really think of as robots anymore because it's, well, no, there's a machine that can do this, you know, but your car was put together by a robot. These, the robots that do that are incredible. You know, when you actually walk a factory line, they can actually pick, you know, they can pick a car off the ground. And so 
so it's really a question of what <laughs> what kind of robots are we looking at going around? And I, I think that people do still have this image of a robot that's going to move around uh, mm-hmm. their house or something like that. But I think there's a big question of if that's if that's going to be the most useful uh, useful thing for a robot to do. Yeah. You know, I guess I, I never I never thought of it until so you just said that. But like I have a Roomba. I was like, oh, my Roomba is actually a robot robot vacuum cleaner. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and vacuum, you know, so vacuum robots were one of the first ones to take off on the corporate side, too. You have, you know, you have thousands of those things out there, but they're replacing a job that's that doesn't make that much money. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Logistics robots have, have been amazing. You know, Amazon acquired a company called Kiva. But there, there have been lots of uh, robotics companies and logistics of just going around warehouses and actually picking up packages and going putting them in the right place. That's it's very predictable work. It's very exciting work for a robot to be able to do. And mm-hmm. so it's it's really where. But what, you know, once you really get those things running out there, you don't really think about them as robots when you're in that warehouse. You know, just the same as I've seen people now with autonomous forklifts in some of the warehouses that we're in. You don't you don't think of that as a robot really. You're like, well, that's, it's a forklift. It's just, it's, it's driverless, right? Mm. And, and there's a way that once these things kind of start to get into our lives, it's just like getting FaceTime where, yeah. you know, being a kid, I thought, I thought the same that you did. I was like, that is the future. And when it actually came around, nobody was that impressed, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? They kind of jumped right in and thought, yeah, we, we can do this. And, and life went on. I think that's yeah. what happens when robots really, really integrate into <laughs> daily operations. Mm-hmm. Well, what are the economic implications of this? So, you know, you mentioned that you know, were talking about like robots in warehouses, you know, that kind of stuff, because I would imagine that there are probably a lot of jobs that are going to go away uh, because of, of robotics and automation and AI. And although Kevin Kelly, when we had him recently, he said he's like, I've been trying to find a person who has lost their job due to AI. And he's like, I haven't <laughs> been able to. Uh, which I thought was really fascinating because it made me think it's like, yeah, OK, that makes sense because we're talking about just changing the way that we work. But I can tell you this from having worked at McDonald's my uh, senior year of high school and going into a McDonald's now is like, oh, wow, there's a kiosk here that used to do the job of a kid. And this kiosk is a thousand times more reliable than some idiot teenager taking my order in the drive through. Yeah. And that, I think really, you know, ATMs were were really a big one to look at in this historically, because when the ATM came out, people thought bank tellers are going to lose their jobs all over the place. And they thought this is going to be terrible for bank tellers. But what you actually see in that story is as ATMs became available because they were more affordable, banks were able to put them all over the place. So you had new branches opening in places that you never would have because of the margins that they had on them. And because of that, most people would do their simple transactions through there, but they would still want tellers for, for more complicated transactions. And so they, you know, they have these great graphs that you can go and look at of how many teller jobs there have been. They've surged hugely after the ATM has been around because they make, they make the industry more ubiquitous. Uh, they make people use it more and rely on it more. And so there's always that stuff for human beings to go back to and, you know, where they're really going to need their decisions and be able to handle the, the just kind of hard problems, be able to have the soft skills, all these kinds of things. Mm. I, I think we see that across you know, security guards are what we replace most often. But we, we again, we do not go in and, you know, it's not like, all right, Frank, thanks for your 40 years of service. You know, you can head home. We got a robot now. Mm-hmm. It's it's really a ton of these positions are gapped. They're, they're very hard to keep a security guard working. There's huge turnover in the industry because it's a very boring job. And so as you actually put a robot in to do these tasks, what you end up finding is the security teams love it. 
they're freed from having to do, you know, alarm response, right? If a door is open, they have to walk there, go look at it, and then walk back and log it and say it was good. A robot can do that, right? That's not a, that's not a job that kids dream of having. Right. And so, you know, anybody that really has security as, as a calling and is really looking to protect spaces or anything like that, they're always going to have jobs in the industry. So it's really these, these low level tasks that, that you're able to create. And it's amazing how much time would we have spent washing clothes if it weren't for washers and dryers, <laughs> right? That yeah. would be a huge portion of your life. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's cool to watch those parts of life kind of disappear and to see what, what people can do. They can do amazing things with, with that time and with being able to have all those services done for them. Yeah. So this is a sort of stupid and morbid curiosity question. How hard is it to actually build a robot? Like, let's say I wanted a functional robot. Uh, you know, I gave you the example. Like, I was like, you know what? I want a robot that will cook my food for me where I can just tell it, you know, here are the ingredients. Here's the instructions. Like, I mean, I'm guessing that's way more complicated than, you know, making it sound. Yeah. So that's, well, the, the other, the other joke that we always have about, uh, if robots are taking jobs is robots are job creators because every robot that you deploy takes two engineers to run. <laughs> um, <laughs> they are, they're, they're extremely difficult. You know, our, our robot, for example, we, we have a fabric over it. Uh, you know, so it, it looks like a high end piece of office furniture. It just looks like it's, you know, it's, it's like the duck on the surface of the water, but under the water, it's, it's paddling like hell to, to move so gracefully. <laughs> And, you know, we've got over a thousand pieces in our robot. So just already in, in terms of supply chain of trying to get all of those pieces in, of being able to get manufacturers that are, that are trained on putting all of these pieces together. And then on all of the things that can go wrong as you're piecing these robots together to make them not work. Um, it's, it's incredible, dif- incredibly difficult to overcome all of those challenges. And so, yeah, if you want a, you know, even, even a very simple task like that, you know, there's, there's tons of, backend that needs to go on. There's, there, there's tons of coding in all of these things that needs to go on to get the robot to be able to do that. Um, there are a lot of pieces now that you can buy off the shelf that, that can actually do, you know, they have little arms or they have little things that can grasp. So you can, you can buy some mechanical things like that, but piecing them together is, is not easy. I mean, we have, you know, we have 20 some engineers doing it full time and still always working on our basic navigation, all of our basic functions that you would think, oh, that would have been solved in, in the first year of the company. All of these things, you know, doing them in the real world is so challenging that we're always improving them, always over the error, error uh, updates and things. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really interesting. I mean, it's gone in several different directions, uh, and I feel like I could talk to you all day, but in the interest of time, uh, I want to finish with my uh, final question. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm always so interested in how, in how people... <laughs> In, in how people answer this, to me, you know, something, somebody, something becoming unmistakable is really when somebody can give themselves over as much as they can to themselves, uh, while still adhering to rules and principles. And and what I mean by that is, I really see there's a sort of freedom that comes through discipline that people can have. Um, people can really, you know, their personality really shows through once they learn the basics of something, and. To me, when somebody matches up all the discipline that actually goes into just making their craft really good, and they can still not be a prisoner to those rules, that's that's really what makes something something or somebody unmistakable. Amazing. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything that you're up to? CobaltRobotics.com. 
is is where we where we've got it all. So we're we're always we're looking forward. We're getting new new things posted there, new videos about some of the cool stuff that our robots are doing. So we're we're excited to share it. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.